1: The Finding Holy Podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy Podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts.
0: We realize we have such a lack of spiritual conformity to his divine nature and such a realization of a lack of devotion and fullness of love in our life.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's episode was preached in the late 1800s in Los Angeles, California by Phineas Brzee. Joel,
2: in this sermon, Brzee discusses the idea of fire and how it is used in the Bible to cleanse and create a passion. I have recently been camping a little bit more lately. And this is something about fire. If you picture it in your head, you can. It's this comforting thing that warms you up. It engages you. It can cook your food. Uh, you just stare at it and you enjoy it. It just adds something, an element, you know. But it's also this dangerous thing that can literally kill you or burn everything around it. Yet in that burning, it also cleanses. You know, it can create. It creates room for other things and new things to grow. And thinking about that while thinking of this sermon is amazing. The way God takes something that's so could potentially harm us and yet he can also choose to use it as kind of the thing that cleanses us and helps us grow closer to him it's just interesting to kind of think about that element you know we talk a lot about water and the way baptism and stuff but it's interesting to think of the way fire is used by god as well
3: yeah phineas brazee was born in new york in 1838 and i don't see a whole lot on his life pre-salvation we know that he was educated fairly well. We know that he heard the Bible a lot growing up. He may even have wanted to become a minister growing up. We're not entirely sure. But when he comes to know the Lord in 1856, we see his life take off. He he becomes a part of the Methodist Episcopal Church there in Davenport. And the next year, he helps his family move to Iowa.
2: Now, when his family moves to Iowa, the pastor of the new church they start attending, he, he saw potential for Brizzy and his passion for God, and he gave him a chance to kind of preach. And I love the story of him, his first time preaching, because I think it's something that if you've ever preached or stood in front of a crowd at all, you could probably maybe relate to this. I think, I think Joel, you can relate to it too. He gets up there and he, he preaches for 20 minutes, just only oh, yeah. 20 minutes, and he, he preached his heart out and when he sat down he remembered thinking to himself like how do other preachers preach for so long i i feel like i've said all yep. there is to say about this subject and um i relate to that i my first time giving a bible study in high school went uh pretty much like that and i think i think a lot of us who without any chance to speak can can say
3: they've they've been there for sure uh in iowa he had a bumpy start there he began preaching And serving at various churches around the area in 1857, and in 1860, he married his longtime sweetheart from New York. But this was all coming together uh, about the time the Civil War, the American Civil War started to take effect, and so the economy of Iowa took a really big hit as the resources of the country were being used to, to fight the Civil War. During this time though he still managed to go around his preaching circuit and preach to these different churches for 5 years. Around 1865 he said that he he went through a kind of a dark time spiritually. He was struggling with pride and struggling with his faith and kind of doubting his faith, all kinds of things. And this went on for for two years, all until one day in 1867, and he couldn't remember what it was. He couldn't remember why. He just remembers praying at the altar of the church when he felt the presence of God wash over him and what he says, a, a fire and a passion for Jesus Christ that we see never went away for the rest of his life.
2: He is not the only person to experience something like this. Uh, when I hear this story, I think of Christmas Evans, and I think of George Whitfield, and I actually think of uh, multiple people that we've had on the show, uh, or we're going to have on the show, that have kind of had this moment where they have this deeper commitment level come to God. Now, he described this as being a focus on holiness, and he joined the what is called the Holiness Movement. Now, we haven't really talked much about the holiness movement, but the idea of holiness and this and what he means by this has been around and was actually nearly at its height just before the Civil War, this group was. Uh, but as Christians, were kind of leaning to this idea. Some people, not all of them, believe that God could perfect us on earth and set up this millennium reign with perfect Christians on earth. And this idea was kind of coming to a height in popularity, but then the Civil War erupted and that kind of went out the window. The idea that Christians were getting more perfect kind of died when sons were killing each other on the battlefield. But the holiness movement got up again after the Civil War, and the idea that Christians needed to be sanctified and focused on holiness and living, they tended to stress this second experience with Christ after conversion, this the getting washed and clean and sanctified and kind of they maybe baptized with fire, baptized with the Holy Spirit, something happening to them after their conversion. And this idea really affected the Methodist Church. It took hold in a lot of other places too, but it really took hold in the Methodist Church. Uh, the Second Great Awakening had a lot to do with this, and, and our modern Pentecostal movements in the church today get their roots kind of from this idea too. So this was a really important um, idea that was alive in the 1800s.
3: Brzee became a, a quite respected and well-known during this time due to his newfound passion for the gospel. He got several leadership roles in his church, until they made the move to California in 1883. There in California, he began to push the ideas of the Holiness Movement, and it was becoming pretty successful as one of his churches grew to uh, a 1,000 members, which was notable in that area at that time. But some of the Methodists he worked with were influential and did not like the Holiness Movement as much, so they asked Brzee to be removed, and after 37 years, in the Methodist Church, Brzee walked away from the Methodist Church to what he felt God was calling him
2: to. At the time, about half the Methodist Church was leaning in the direction of the Holiness Movement, half wasn't. So this was just a big rift they were going through, and Brzee was one of the people kind of caught in that time frame. Uh, This was a hard time for him, obviously, walking away from the church he had served for 37 years. He had moved to California and only ever wanted to serve the church, but he also felt... kind of free during this time. He kind of always wanted to try to do things differently, and now he thought, well, maybe now we can. So he set up some Bible studies, uh, church meetings, and kind of a more small-paced idea. He, He purposely wanted this new group to meet in old barns and old shacks, things that he thought would feel welcoming, which I think is funny because it's the opposite of welcoming to us. We want everything new and shiny so people feel comfortable. But he was saying, no, no, I want a church that a person, no matter how poor that person was, they could walk in and go, no, I feel welcome here. I don't have to be rich to be here. I see that old cracking barn door. I know this place accepts me. A friend of his, J.P. Whitney, whom he'd served with and worked with, recommended they start this new church, and they gave it a kind of a lowly name, as their goal was to show love to the poorest and lowliest of people. That, so again, once again, anybody could feel welcome here. They called it
3: the Church of the Nazarene, and this church opened in 1894. They started with 100 members, but quickly grew to 1,000. So now you have the church growing fast, and he starts planning additional churches, and by 1907, The West Coast had so many churches that there were church plants that were extending all the way out to Illinois. And they were having this problem deciding whether to be an association of churches or whether it was a denomination of of itself. And after further conversation and debating, they decided we're going to make a denomination. This is a denomination here. The elders wanted to put the word Pentecostal into their title, but Brzee didn't like that word. He didn't He thought it was too charismatic and would give the wrong idea of who they were. Now, unrelated, the elders had this problem with Brzee where he would smoke pipes. He was a pipe smoker, and the elders uh, had, had an issue with that. And so... Brzee made this made this uh, compromise with him. He says, hey, if I stop smoking pipes, can we agree to leave the word Pentecostal out of the title of our denomination? And that was the agreement they came to.
2: And that was how we got the Church of the Nazarene denomination, which is now the 17th largest denomination in the United States. Uh, it's interesting, too. The, the pipe thing reminds me of uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was known for smoking cigars uh, when he got letters from moms begging him to stop. Saying, hey, you're smoking, my kids are smoking because I say, well, Spurgeon smokes cigars, so I can too. And it was hard for him, but at the end of his life, Spurgeon also gave up that c- cigar smoking to kind of help these moms out. So it just is interesting to me how these, these very famous guys had to give up this little habit here. There's one other big incident I wanted to talk about in his life. In 1900, on the way home from a Wednesday night prayer service, he he was on a horseback carriage and he was taking a small group of people across an electric line when a trolley, or they called it electric car, I think it's probably a trolley or a streetcar if you've ever seen one of those, was booking it through the line and it smashed into his carriage. Uh, although he led the he was the one leading the carriage it was agreed by everybody that the electric car were was just going way too fast down the track in fact it took him a couple blocks before they could slow down even after they had smashed his carriage a woman in the carriage with him died pretty much on the spot he was actually like flown from it knocked unconscious he suffered injuries Um, he didn't wake up for three days and these injuries stuck with him for the rest of his life um, and it makes sense, you know, you're stoned by a carriage by a giant electric, you know, steel machine at at the age of 62. That would be tough for anybody to go through. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. In 1911, he started to uh, retire mostly due to these injuries and his age. He's now 73 and he just felt like it was getting too hard for him. And he would he would die in 1915. But... He never really lost his intelligence and passion. It's just the suffering he experienced kind of started to slow him down a bit in those later years.
3: In this sermon, Brzee emphasizes the need for us to look at God for the cleansing of our sins and acknowledge in God our need for a Savior. He believed it was necessary and vital for us to live lives that were holy and to have a fire for God. And this sermon encourages just that.
0: And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims to me, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the fire on the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Now this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin purged. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Isaiah was already a prophet, even as a young man. He was perhaps educated in the school of the prophets. His passionate young life seems to have been given to God and his work. Previous to this time period in his life, the spirit of prophecy had already come upon him, but it is evident that he had seen only dimly. His vision had been hindered by several things. One was the glare of the great prosperity of Uzziah's reign, which led him to look for the hope of Israel in the wrong direction. Another was that his own spiritual nature had not been so fully transformed as to enable him to see spiritual things clearly. He was not yet ready to be the vehicle of the transmission of the clearest and greatest truths. It is a law as old as humanity that pure hearts see God and tongues tipped with flames tell his great truths. Isaiah's young life was devoted to God, and according to the light he had, he was faithful to his high calling. It is from such small faithfulness that the richer things of a better experience come. They don't go to the careless and disobedient. Now, during the wreck of the things in which he had placed his hope and the darkening of the multiplying problems around him, God had revealed himself to Isaiah. During this tough time, he taught him something further in reference to his own character and the nature of true worship. Here was the real hope of Israel. It lay in this personal relationship to God. That holiness of heart and angelic devotion were Israel's true success, and that all other lines were dark and hopeless. This revelation to Isaiah was so sudden, vast, and deep, and so far-reaching that it overwhelmed him. It is difficult for us to appreciate this situation for these things have come to us gradually. We spell out these great truths syllable by syllable and we can hardly conceive the bursting of this fully orbed sun upon his twilight like a glowing, shining, burning revelation by the personal appearance of the divine Christ. He says, the house was ruled with smoke. It was really the darkness of his eyes turned suddenly toward the sunlight. It was the confusion of the convict in his own soul. Probably few men have ever gotten so clear a view of their great need of a more perfect transformation. But the first effect was the dimness of his own vision in his own soul as his own spiritual temple was filled with smoke. But Isaiah stayed in the vision, and his eyes began to get accustomed to the new light, and he began to see some things, and those things were in reference to himself. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Oh, Isaiah, what is the matter? Haven't you been a servant of the Lord for these years? Haven't you had some very amazing visions of the glory of Jerusalem? Weren't you able, by the Spirit, to utter some very clear moral teachings? Oh, yes, yes. And I have tried to be right, but in this clearer light, I see I cannot stand. I have heard a new word, and that word is holy. I have heard it uttered with an awful glorious emphasis. It fills this new vision, and its echo is all about me. In the presence of this utterance and of that glorious light which comes from the face of the Lord, I am unclean. Notice the power of this new conviction. Pain gathers at some point, and thought gathers at the place of pain. Isaiah was a prophet. His life, work, concentrated in the things he said. Here was his life, his being, his work, all concentrated. I am not the echo of the angel's cry. The people around me are in the same condition. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The lips... No doubt, stand for the blossom of life, the final results of life, the worship offered to God. The people among whom I dwell are not holy in their very devotions. They are callous in heart, careless in life, selfish in spirit, and yet they tread your temple. How natural this experience. How often I have seen it reenacted in the lives of men. The Lord reveals himself only to honest, earnest, reverent, longing spirits. He never stoops to answer irreverence or to convince careless skepticism. In the days of his incarnation, he made no attempts and showed no miracles for those. In their presence, he was dumb or his speech was a rebuke. It is always so. If a man is careless or if he scoffs and blasphemes, he may expect no extraordinary manifestation to startle, convince, or change him. One great sign has been given, the cross, and it is enough to awaken men's thoughts with earnest long longing and reverent seeking. But if men do not seek after God, God is nothing to them. If men do not feel their need for him, he is slow to supply it to them. If men seek darkness, he is to them no light. If men plead to be excused from the blessedness of devotion and fellowship, then God excuses them. But to men who feel their need and who reverently and earnestly seek after God, to them he reveals himself. To such as these men, light springs up in darkness. But to them, the revelation of his light is gradual And that light is first a revelation of one's own self, a sense of the need for salvation from beyond what you can do appears. And then a direct sense of pardon and adoption into the family of God. This far, I suppose, Isaiah had probably come before this marvelous vision. The next great revelation which comes into our lives as men and women of God, which comes from the very pressing of ourselves up against the heart of God, is a great surprise. For it is a further revelation of ourselves and our needs. It does not come to apathetic souls or worldly spirits, but to men hungering and thirsting after God. It comes from a new manifestation of himself through his word and by his spirit, It brings a deep sense of how unlike God we are. We realize we have such a lack of spiritual conformity to His divine nature and such a realization of a lack of devotion and fullness of love in our life. What moments and perhaps days of confusion and of longing and of heart searching. People come to me and say, I fear I am backsliding. I don't know what is the matter with me. It is the smoke. That fills the temple. Isaiah became utterly despondent. Woe is me. One thing was certain to Isaiah. He could not continue to go along as he had been going. He saw as he had never seen before the holiness of the divine character and the perfect devotion and fervor of real worship. He can never more turn his eyes to the divine Lord and worship without a new need to be in his likeness. How true this is to the Christian experience. As there comes to us the new revelation of the divine presence and our lack of conformity and the possibility of a more perfect conformity to the divine spirit. How true is it that we can never go on as we have been without the light? Truth ungrasped and not acted upon leaves the soul dead and barren, and the light which did abide goes out. There are many backsliders in the churches, and the main cause is that they have not been honestly loyal to the new revelations that have come to them. There is a widespread prejudice in the church today against what they consider excessive passion and piety. And by that, they mean an all-embracing salvation that makes soul, body, and spirit all the Lord's. I want to ask you this question. Have you been true to the new light which has shone upon your hearts from the face of Jesus Christ as the Holy Ghost has revealed him to you? Isaiah stood confused but loyal. We are merely so afraid of going away that we do not know. We stand and shake our heads and say that we do not understand all this. The Holy Ghost takes the deep things of God and shows them to us, the necessity for a clean heart, the power of the blood of Jesus, the fullness of love An angelic devotion, and we stand shivering near the shore. We hear the testimony of Fletcher, Bramwell, Carvasso, and of men and women among us whose lips the holy fire has touched. And we are like the swimmer who stands dipping his feet in the surf, while others are out in the waves enjoying the fullness of the sea. We say, "I don't understand it. This little bit around my feet is about all I can bear, but..." I will reach down and try to wet my face with it. But by the time we reach after it, the waves have disappeared from us. You do not understand it, but God's voice calls you out into the deep. Isaiah did not understand it, but how he clung to the vision. He finished the confession of his condition and need with a restatement of the facts before him. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Hold on to the light, to the revealed possibility which has come to your soul. Do not turn your gaze away from the promises of God. There are no impossibilities with God. He has his own way of accomplishing his ends. Faith sees the promise and looks to them alone. If God requires holiness in the inner parts, if he has promised that the blood will cleanse your heart, he will fulfill his promise. As Isaiah lingered on his need and the vision, Jewish ritual and service were left behind. Forms and ceremonies were lost. His soul stood face to face with the Lord. There was but one symbol that remained. It was God's abiding symbol, an altar with fire. It was the same symbol that was present when he spoke to Moses in the wilderness, a fire that did not consume nor even singe a single leaf, but leaped and glowed and burned and brightened and told of his presence. As he spoke from Sinai, it was fire rolling and leaping in untold glory about its rocks. When he would answer his prophet in such a way as to confuse his enemies, it was by fire leaping from the skies and when John the Baptist came crying, prepare you the way of the Lord. When he spoke of his work, he said, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And when the time had come to present to the world a completed church, which would make men and women come to life, the symbol or the emblem we see is the same. The purifying, anointing, transforming, power imparting symbol of the divine presence was fire tongues of fire. So it was with Isaiah. He was touching God's infinite, eternal law of love, finding vent through the revelation of his soul. Isaiah stood face to face with divine love and power. He pressed his needy spirit up to God. And that thing occurred, which Always will occur when human need and divine love meet and mingle in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fire touched him. The angel flew bearing a live coal from the altar and touched his lips and said, now this has touched your lips And your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Oh, the mystery, the power and the glory of that touch of fire, how it kissed. Isaiah's soul into a new and nearer relationship with God, how it burned in its purifying power through his spirit, how it cleared the clouds of smoke away, how it prepared him to stand for God, witnessing to his great salvation. Isaiah walked the way just before us. He entered in to the holy of holies just ahead of us. But we too have come to him who baptizes with fire.
2: Whatever side of the holiness movement one falls on, I think that in today's culture, a lot of Christians are realizing there's a need for holiness in our lives that God has created us to show fruit of our faith and, and it's a sign of us walking and growing closer to god it's something tangible that we should be able to see in our lives if we are growing closer to him it's something that is both a fruit to other believers that they can recognize in us and it's also something that will stand out to unbelievers as something important about our faith i think that is something we need to carry with us from this sermon this idea that we do need to have Um, a close walk with the Holy Spirit. We do need to be bringing out good fruit. There needs to be an emphasis on living a life that's holy and set apart and not just focused on living the same way as everyone else around us is.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Owen White. Pastor Owen White answered God's call on his life to preach at the age of 16. Since then he has served many years in youth and worship ministries. Pastor Owen has been serving as lead pastor at Nazarene churches for the past seven years. His current assignment is in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He graduated from Eastern Nazarene College and is married to Hillary and currently has three kids.
2: If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we really hope you will consider sharing it with others, telling other people about what we are doing here at Revive Thoughts, bringing these old sermons back for you and giving you the history of the preachers who preach them. Uh, we hope that you will uh, maybe send it as a text message, send it as a uh, messenger message, put it out there share it on social media. And while you're on social media, go ahead and give us a like on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, where we put out different content throughout the week that can help you uh, grow closer to God. And if you haven't subscribed to Revive Divas, I highly recommend that you do that as well. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
1: I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.
1: Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.